You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ahmed Munawar. I'm so excited today to bring David Fields onto the show. David is the author of a book called The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients. And I think you're going to find David's perspective to be very unique. See, David is not a marketing guy. He didn't come up through marketing. He's a consulting guy. He came up through the consulting industry, started his own firm, and eventually went out and started helping other boutique consulting firms grow their practices. So I think you'll find that David's ideas, both in his book and in the interview, are a bit of a a fresh departure from the typical marketing advice that you'll find out there. For example, David does not believe that consulting firms should try to differentiate themselves. And you'll have to listen to the interview to see what he really does believe on that topic and on many others. Show notes to this episode are at forecast.fm slash fields. That's forecast.fm slash F-I-E-L-D-S. Before I let you go, if you haven't yet joined us inside our free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms, you're going to want to check that out. Inside the course, I will show you a step-by-step framework that you can use to generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge, and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com. And you can spell out five or use the number. Either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. With that, here is David Fields. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm a, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So listen, I would love to dial the clock back with you for a minute here and, and talk about how David Fields got started in the consulting business. <laughs> so you're, you're dialing the clock way back, um, 20 years or so. I started in consulting by joining a boutique firm in Connecticut. My background and my skill set at the time was kind of picture perfect for what they needed. Um, This was a firm that focused on the relationship between manufacturers and retailers. And all my background in corporate, I had a decade in corporate before I went into consulting. And my background was was all in that area. So I fit in very naturally as kind of a low-level consultant in that boutique firm. And then I just worked my way up uh, in that firm. So that's how I started. I I was very, very fortunate because I worked for a couple of folks that knew the business extremely well. And and how long were you in the in that industry before you jumped ship to the boutique firm? Um, So in, in the industry in corporate, I was in corporate for a decade. And then I went to the the boutique firm for, let's see, um, from 97 to 2005. So however long that was, seven, eight years, something like that. And, and when you were in corporate, were you working at kind of larger companies typically? Oh, yeah. I was at GSK for okay. most of my, my career, uh, other than very brief stint elsewhere. Um, I was and it wasn't GSK at the time, but it turned into GSK. Um, and so, yeah, big, big company. So what was that transition like going from this, this big, massive company to a, to a smaller boutique environment? It was uh, super hard. And actually, that's what I tell most people when they're going from corporate into consulting. I tell them to expect a one year transition uh, minimum. And I have found that to be almost always the case with uh, only maybe one or two exceptions. 
because consulting looks really easy from the outside and it, and it turns out it's much more complex from the inside. And w- when you're in corporate, what you do is you solve the problem that's in front of you. That's your job to solve whatever problem it is you're handed or whatever problem it is you determine you have to solve. But in consulting, you not only have to solve the problem, you also have to manage the client, think about the next project, think about how the current project is working, all the relationships. So so there's kind of multiple levels happening at once. And I think that takes a while for the typical corporate person to to figure out. Uh, One of the questions I get a lot, David, is, is how much time should I spend in the industry, you know, kind of honing my skills and my craft before I make the leap to either a consulting firm, firm or as an independent consultant? Do you have like a, a rule of thumb to offer? Wow. You know, it's funny. I actually don't get that question, <laughs> but it's a really interesting question. Um, I don't have a rule of thumb in terms of experience. I, I do have, uh, I, I think it's, you, you are better off, um, you can provide better answers to your clients when you've had some experience, when you've walked in their shoes. I think it's easier to win work when you've had more experience. Ultimately, though, I think it's determined by how passionate you are about being in boutique consulting or a solo consulting enterprise as opposed to being in corporate and your tolerance for risk and your tolerance for a very different financial profile than you have when you're working at corporate. Um, so I think if you if you can set yourself up financially to make the move, then whenever you're ready, you're ready. I mean, I've certainly seen people that only have a few years of experience in corporate uh, transition over to consulting and do very well. Um, that said, I've seen people that have a couple of decades in corporate um, also transition over and do extremely well because they already have all the contacts and, and they have uh, experience that makes it particularly easy for them to win business. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. Now, when you joined that boutique firm, did, did you know that you wanted a career in consulting or were you still kind of testing the waters? I just wanted a job. <laughs> to be honest, I had lost my job. Um you know, which seems to be a rite of passage these days. I left GSK and went to another business. Um, I, I, I frankly, I made a bad decision going there. Um, the one time in my, my life I got, I'd said no. And then they put enough dollars in front of me that I said yes, which is just not smart on my part. It turned out we were not a good match. And, you know, my initial instincts were correct. And so they, they, uh, let me go. And then I was looking for a job. This consulting firm had approached me six months earlier. And so I just went there and said, yeah, you know, let me try this. So I, I didn't go thinking, wow, I want a career in consulting. I went there thinking, uh, wow, I want a job. These people seem interesting. And, you know, we'll see what happens. So uh, and you spent, you know, the last the what, 20, 20 some odd years in the consulting business. So I'm, I'm curious to hear, was was there a particular moment in that boutique firm experience where you realized that, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for the foreseeable future? Uh, probably, but it was probably long enough ago that I don't remember it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love consulting. So um, and of course, you know, my business has transitioned and I no longer work for that boutique firm. I have my own firm. I, I would guess. Um, you, you know, there's been a progression working for a big company, working for a smaller company, working for a boutique, working for myself. And, um, at, at each step along the way, I've been, uh, increasingly happy. So, uh, I, I can't imagine, you know, working for a corporation now because, uh, I, I get so much enjoyment out of running a firm. Um, 
so was there a moment, uh, you know, I don't know if there was a, there was some epiphany or morning I woke up and said, oh, this is it. Um, but I love consulting. And I think probably after the first year, which was the first year in the boutique, which was pretty miserable, um, you know, I realized it was a great career. And after the first year on my own, which was also pretty miserable, <laughs> I realized, you know, this is this is just fabulous. And why, why was that first year in the boutique miserable? Was it just the, the transition? Yeah, just the transition. Uh, the transition w- was challenging. Um, and, uh, I had, you know, I worked for a firm that had high expectations and rightfully so, but that first year can be tough as you're trying to figure out, um, you know, what the heck you're doing. And I couldn't figure out the conversations because the conversations were always a mix of the problem at hand and the client, right? Because as I mentioned, this is what we're doing. We're not just solving a problem. A client gives us an issue and we need to solve that. But if we're really doing our job well, we're also thinking about the client experience. We're thinking about client management, relationship management. We're thinking about how do we um, create value and at the same time win that next project if in fact there's another project where we could add value. And so all those conversations were all mixed together. And if you're an experienced consultant, it's easy to parse those and, and figure out w- which part of the conversation is which. But if someone brand new to it, I found it somewhat confusing. Yeah, there's, there's a definite learning curve there. So tell me about how you, you made the decision to go from boutique firm to then solo independent consultant. Well, um, so here's what happened. So I was with this firm. The firm underwent a few changes. And um, ultimately, there were six partners that um, were involved when we were going to be purchased. And one of the other partners and I decided we didn't want to be part of that, that purchase, part of that buyout. And so we spun off and formed our, our own firm. And so I actually did, never got into this with the intention of being a solo. Um, I co-founded Ascendant Consulting. Uh, and that, as, as I often say on stage, I said that, that, that went phenomenally well for about four uh, weeks. And then my partner decided, you know what, this isn't really what he wanted to do. And so he left. And then I found myself as a solo consultant. Um, it was not what I had intended. And for good reason, because my skill set in consulting was all around the back room, was all around the engine, building models, uh, developing sophisticated solutions for clients. Um, because I'm, I'm basically a quant geek. I'm a, I'm a, come from a quant school, Carnegie Mellon, and I love playing with numbers and, you know, working in the, in the back room. I was not a relationship guy and not a sales guy. So my partner was, was supposed to play that role. When he left, <laughs> that put me in a little bit of a bind because I didn't have those selling skills. I didn't have that relationship building uh, sort of natural ability, and I didn't have any clients. So I found myself in, in somewhat of a world of hurt at the beginning. And, um, you know, but growing through that and learning the lessons I had to learn was uh, invaluable. Um, and I think that's what's allowed me now to help other folks. If I was, a, you know, a natural salesperson, if I was a natural relationship builder, it, it might be so innate and obvious to me that would be it would be hard to communicate. But the fact is, I'm not. I've had to learn all of this the hard way. 
And therefore, I, I can really empathize with folks who are, are struggling, whether they're in a solo firm or they're in a, a boutique, you know, some sort of small consulting firm. Um, you, you know, when, when folks are struggling, uh, I've been there. I have I have walked in those shoes. So take take me back to that time, four weeks after you uh, you co-founded a firm, your partner who is responsible for the sales and bringing in the deals, which I'm sure was a, was a big part of why you decided to co-found that firm, decides to leave. What are your options? Did you think about getting a job? Did you did you know you had to make it work? What were you thinking? Sure, I thought about getting a job, um, but I didn't have any place immediate to turn. I had a young family, um, you know, for a variety of issues, I couldn't just relocate. And so, uh, and I wanted to make this work. I really wanted to make it work. I just had to figure out how. And to say that that first year was challenging would be gross understatement. Um, there were moments of abject terror <laughs> and, and total panic and uh, teetering on the, on the edge of bankruptcy, which is not something I would wish upon anyone. Uh, you know, but I, like I said, I didn't have the skills and I didn't have the contacts and I didn't have the, um, you know, I, I just didn't have the, the abilities or experience to bring in business. And I had to learn that. And it took a while that, like I said, that first year was, uh, pretty brutal to be, you know, to be completely honest. Now, fortunately I did learn the lessons and, you know, a year later, I, I think I did probably, you know, a shade over three quarters of a million dollars. And, and so, you know, and, and from there, the you know business has been great, but that first year was awful. So, I mean, that that sounds pretty bad, right? You didn't have the skills, <laughs> you didn't have the the clients, you didn't have the relationships. Um, you know, there's there seem to be mindset issues. Obviously, coming out of a boutique firm, you, you didn't do any selling. Uh, that that sounds really bad. Uh, tell me a little bit about kind of the steps that you took to to get yourself out of that hole. Um, well, <clears throat> I, I took a few steps. Uh, and I got um, fortunate because I did manage to get a project which kept me, you know, sort of my head above water. Um, and I got a project the way you typically get projects, especially at the beginning, is, uh, I, you know, I'd made enough calls that someone, a, a friend of mine, and actually it may have been my, the co-founder, um, he had had a, a call about something and he handed it to me. But I got myself a, a, a mentor. And that was a very smart move. I got, you know, I, I hired someone, I paid someone good money who had been there and done that before me. And uh, it, because I knew I had to invest to, to learn skills that I did not have and to improve the skills that I did have and to understand even where my blind spots were. So I hired someone uh, and that was very smart. And uh, also, as I was working, I, I had a, the good fortune to, to work with some bright people who were willing to give me tips. And uh, it, it, you mentioned uh, before we started the interview that you had read part of the book. There, I mentioned a couple of folks in that book. One's a guy named uh, Bob Petinelli. I met him on this first project. And this is a, an, a grizzled old uh, Philip Morris salesperson who has, you know, he, he's been there, done that. It, seen everything. And he sat me down and said, David, here's, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's uh, a few tips. And that was um, just incredibly valuable and helpful. And I suppose I was willing enough to learn or desperate enough to learn that I learned. 
I, I always find it fascinating because this is a, a common a common thread uh, that I see in, in a lot of these stories is there's a point where you hit rock bottom uh, and you know things look pretty bleak and then you go and you find a mentor or you hire a mentor. But I'm always fascinated. How do you work up the courage to hire a mentor and pay them good money when you're, you know, in your words, on the brink of bankruptcy? Uh, <clears throat> well, you, you have to, to make a decision, right? There, there are moments in your life and your career, and, and, and frankly, those moments happen a lot. They're not just one or two moments. When you have to make a commitment, you have to decide, am I going to do this or not? And if so, am I willing to invest? Am I, am I going to do this for real or am I just playing at it? And if you're going to do something for real, you, you have to, to pony up. And that means your money. That means your time. It means your attention. You know, you're either doing it or you're not. Whether it's your business or getting in shape or, you know, anything else, right? You you can't just say, well, I want to go to the gym. You have to commit and go every day. And if you're really serious about getting fit, then you hire a trainer. Or if you're, and it's true of anything. So, at the point where you decide, you know what, I am serious about this. That's fine to say it. It's another thing to act on it. And it's the people who are willing to act on it that I find make huge leaps, you know, personally and professionally. And I was willing to act on it. Yeah, I mean, you're you're not gonna get you're not gonna get very wet if you you dip your toe into the water to see how see how it feels, right? You got you got to jump in head first, and and that's that's where real change happens. Absolutely, you have to be willing to try. You have to be willing to fail over and over. I mean, that that's kind of become very tired now, but it's true. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to put your ego aside, Um, and more than anything, you have to be willing to commit. Now you mentioned in the book that you had to make a you had to make a shift in your focus from uh, from from your previous specialty to a new a, a new specialty, which was opening up new markets yeah. for for larger companies. At yes. what point in this in in the growth of Ascended Consulting did you have to make that shift? Well, pretty early on, I could not do the same thing I had been doing with the boutique firm, um, or else I would have been in legal jeopardy. But also, I didn't have much interest in it. I had already been working with consumer products firms and that relationship between manufacturers and retailers for, uh, you know, a decade-ish. And it wasn't interesting to me anymore. Um, so for both because of my inclination and for legal reasons, I could not stay in the same business. Um, you know, if I could have, would I? Probably not. Maybe just to win some bread and butter projects, which would have been nice. Um but <clears throat> I didn't really want to anyway. And I, I wanted to find, I wanted to go where the market was pointing me and the market was pointing me towards new markets, um, towards helping cl- um, clients and manufacturers put their technology in other places. Uh, and that was interesting to me. So I, I went where the market told me to go. And, and how did you discover that the market was telling you this? Like, how did that come about? Well, for one thing, I had clients back when I was with the boutique firm who had asked me for this. So I, I, I got well, the first of these projects somewhat out of the blue and used the three of the most important words in consulting, which are, yes, I can, when they asked whether I can help them. So you know, the first one came came out of the blue, but then, and then I started 
you know, at least discussing this with folks. And so then the next project and the next project after that weren't so much out of the blue because I had had this capability. Uh, but then I asked, and this is what you have to do. You have to ask people, what do you actually spend money on? What have you spent money on in the past couple of years? And that will tell you where there's opportunity, not where might you spend money, not what you think would be good, not here's an idea I'm thinking about. Do you, do you think uh, people would buy that? None of that is even remotely helpful. What you have to ask is, where have you actually spent money? And where people have spent money is trying to enter new markets, trying to introduce their technology into new spaces, um, trying to figure out how to expand their portfolios. And they've all spent money on that. So I realized, well, they've all spent money on that. And, and I just asked people, right, all the contacts I knew. And they've all spent money on that. They're going to spend money on that again. And that proved to absolutely be the case. Now, when you were when you were in the early days of Ascendant, you know, I think people in your position typically have a bit of a dilemma. Um, even if they can appreciate the need to specialize, um, they need revenue, uh, and and they'll they'll farm themselves out as generalist firms, jack of all trades, who can do anything yeah. and everything just to boost the numbers. Yeah. Did you have a Did you ever have that dilemma? Sure, um, absolutely. I, I I specialized fairly quickly though. Um, with Ascendant. And uh, then a few years later, when I formed the consortium, I kind of became more general again, but just with a a very different kind of business. Um, So yeah, I had that dilemma, but um, I knew, and I I know even more now because of all the firms I work with, specialization is absolutely critical. It is absolutely critical. You win more business by being specialized than you do by being a, a generalist. And even though you're afraid to turn anything away, you, you it's um, it's a mistake. It's an illusion. You, you, you have to be um, super specific, because even more so now than 10 years ago um, and uh, infinitely more now than 20 years ago. 20 years ago, maybe you could be a, a generalist. And I suppose if you've got like a 180 IQ, you could be a generalist and just sort of win on your horsepower. But for the average Joe like me, the average uh, person, you have to specialize. Clients can find anything they want now. It's all it's a very flat world. It's an it's easy access, easy to search. And for that reason, they will find a person who has situation expertise. That requires specialization. Yeah, I mean, th- think of it this way, right? D- d- would you ever go to Google, just as an example, and search for business consultant? <laughs> no one's searching for something general like that. They're searching for the long tail, the, the specific problems, the specific goals, and specific niches. Yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right. That's well said. The, the, the long tail is, in fact, where, where people are, are searching. And the research on that is absolutely unequivocal. Excellent. So, David, listen, I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about the book, uh, sure. the, the Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients. Love the title. Who doesn't want to be an irresistible consultant? <laughs> um, first of all, tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book. Why well, I decided to write the book? Um, I guess I'd probably been promising that book that, you know, I had a uh, and have occasionally a, a course that a lot of consultants take that um, talks about how to acquire clients. And so it, it was natural to pull that together into the, into the book. Um, 
Interestingly, my next book is probably where I, I would have started given my druthers, but it's not a natural first book. And so the, the natural first book is, is how do you win clients? And, uh, or first book for consultants. This is actually my second book. My first book was for the executives who hire consultants. Um, but it, you know, this, this was a, a pretty natural step. I do like to write, uh, and people seem to enjoy what I write by and large. And, uh, yeah, so that this was not a hard decision for me. Yeah, I'm a little bit curious about uh, the the benefits that you've seen because you've written a few books now yeah. of, of of writing a book from from the perspective of being a recognized authority in the space. Uh, well, I mean, anyone. Uh, this is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, anybody will tell you that the author and authority have the same root. The first book, my first book, made like instantly made money. I mean, it was instant six figures, not from book sales. I'm not sure anybody bought the book. <laughs> But having the book put me in a position to win speaking gigs and then to win clients because speaking gigs are by far the fastest path to cash once you have them. And the book helps you get speaking gigs. Uh, so my first book, Instant Clients, um, you know, this book has a, has a slightly different audience and it's still uh, you know, almost instantly produced clients. So it's, our, it's only been out for a few months as we talk right now and, and it you know, produced clients. This book is a little bit different because I wanted it to be able to to stand on its own. No one has to come to me. You can read it, I think, and get you know everything you need. Um, it, you'll to to apply it and to be able to adapt it for your own um, business. It, it probably you know it still helps to have someone to work with. But um, you know, there's a lot in here to to take away. So uh, it. You know, the, the book works great, as any book does. I encourage people to write if that's your natural skill set. If you hate writing, then don't do it. Find something else. Find another way to build your thought leadership. And now I know that you, you, uh, you published this book with a, with a mainstream publisher, but do you have any thoughts on, on, yeah. on that route versus self-publishing? Well, yeah, look, I, I think self-publishing is, is great. You know, it can be at this point, everybody publishes a lot through self-publishing. And, and as a result, I, there was like a really small window, I think, when self-publishing was at its peak in terms of value. And I, I think that's passed. You're better off getting a commercial publisher if you can, simply because most executives know anybody can publish their own book. And so they do take a look now and, and say, you know, is this self-published or, or not? But so it's better to have a commercial publisher, but commercial publishing has distinct disadvantages. Um, they, the, you lose some control. It takes forever. I mean, and, and they all bite. They really do. There's such a pain in the rear. Um, the, at least in my experience with commercial publishers has been that they're, they're very, very challenging to work with. If you are going to self-publish, which I think is perfectly legit, especially if you can't get a publisher, and it's hard to get a publisher, if you're going to self-publish, then it's kind of like what I said earlier, where you have to commit and you have to do it right. You cannot cheap out. And I see people self-publish books that are just horrific. They're not well edited. They don't have good interior design and they don't have good exterior design. And you have to invest in those things because it's not just about the, the content that you want to talk about, though that's important. It's also about the editing. I mean, especially about the editing. And it's about the, you know, having a book that's well produced. 
And so if you're going to self-publish, put aside the dollars in the time and the energy and invest in doing it right. That, that's my recommendation. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Self-publishing should not uh, should not mean amateur publishing, right? You should still have a, a professionally <laughs> laid out written book. Um, I got to ask, I mean, this is totally, yeah. totally off the wall, but sure. did, did you draw the stick figures or did somebody else? Oh, yeah, no, I draw. I do all my drawings. I do oh, them right, really? right over here on this. Uh, you can't see, but I'm pointing at my little laptop here and uh, I'll tap my pen. That's my pen. And uh, with this particular pen and that particular laptop, I, I draw that incredibly sophisticated artwork. <laughs> hey, well, no, it was really well done. I mean, I, I didn't know I had an artist on my hands as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you do. <laughs> so listen, I got a couple of questions for you about the book that yeah. a couple of ideas that I found particularly, uh, particularly fascinating. But before we get into that, I think, uh, you know, we have to kind of set the stage here um, with this idea of right side up thinking. I know that's a yeah. fundamental tenet of the book. It's your step one. Tell us yep. about right side up thinking. Uh, right side of thinking is a um, my shorthand for being customer centric or client centric. It means uh, the the words I, I say is consulting is not about you, it's about them, uh, and them being the clients. And the the more practiced you are, and the better you are at always remembering consulting is not about you, it's about them. The easier this this work is. It turns out that right side up thinking, making it about them is very, very difficult in practice because most of our mind space and our, our natural healthy way of, of being puts us first. And so putting someone else first is, is difficult. When I work on this with boutique firms, uh, we often spend a day, I'll spend a day with, with their senior leadership or with everyone in, in the firm talking about how to apply right side up thinking. And that's when uh, light bulbs sort of go on. It's like, oh my gosh, you mean we could change how we write emails? We could change how we write our proposals. We could change how we market, how we structure, how we handle our clients, how we structure our projects. I mean, everything. You start to realize how uh, broad and powerful this idea is when you spend time against it. So it's a really simple concept. In practice, it has tremendous power and um, it really takes some effort to implement. D does that answer your question? It, it does. And I think anybody that, that listens to you explain it or, or certainly reads reads the chapter in the book will, will get the idea behind right side up thinking pretty quickly. It's, it's not terribly yeah. complicated, but nope. I, I think it's complicated in practice. And, I, and I'm wondering, yes. you know, from your experience with clients, what are the obstacles to actually acting on right side up thinking? Well, habit and 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 just sort of natural our natural normal healthy mindset, right? The natural normal healthy human mindset is to think about yourself. the The reason you are are interviewing me is because at some level you realize it's good for you and it's good for your listeners, which is good for you. And so there's self interest involved. That's normal. That's healthy. And so that, but that of course gets in the way of putting someone else first. We tend to even start our emails. We might say, um, uh, a thank you email might start off saying, um, hi, Ahmed, I really enjoyed being on your show. Well, who's that about? It's about me. I enjoyed being on your show. Very simple, very normal, natural, healthy. To make a client focus, we need to switch that around. So if you were my client, I might say, hi, Ahmed, your show rocked. 
you were a great interviewer and I loved being on it. Now, who's that about? Yeah, it's it's, about- I mean, it's a little things like this. Eh? I mean, I, I think you had you had an example like that in the book as well. And that really hit me because I was I was drafting an email to my email list and I took the summer off of publishing the podcast just so I could kind of plan for the fall and, and get ahead on, on some of the interviews. And the first line in my email that I wrote was uh, in draft, at least, was I took some time off in the summer to get ahead, something like right. that, right? right? And I read, I read the, the the example from the book. Said, that's all about me. That's that's got. Yeah. They don't care that I took time off. They, like exactly. that's completely irrelevant to them. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And and the thing is, actually, people, I think they do care. They so they want to relate to you, but that's not where they want to start. People are more interested about in themselves, and so. Uh, they, they they do want to know that you took some time off, maybe, <laughs> uh, but they don't want to know that first. They want to know you care about them. Then they'll care about you a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great point. I mean, at the same time, you, you know, storytelling is important, um, sure. you know, leaning on your personal experiences um, is, is important, but certainly make sure it's relevant to the client first before you get into uh, into those kind of stories. Yeah. Listen, one of the ideas in the book that I think really it really hit me, um, partially because it's very uh, it's very against the grain kind of advice, as far <laughs> as I can tell, is this idea that consulting firms should not differentiate themselves. Tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, I would expect because you're a marketing person, so I would expect for you that that feels particularly wrong or heretical. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. So, and let's be clear on on what I mean by differentiation, which most people, when they think about differentiation, and that's where a lot of firms start, you know, what, what's going to make us different? How will we, we uh, stand out from the crowd? And so they look for something unique. What will make us unique? The problem with that is, is that's not what clients want. Clients don't want unique. They don't want different. What they want is a reliable, credible solution to their problem. There's maybe 2% of clients that are thinking, you know what, I want something totally new. I've tried everything else before. I want something I've never heard of before. Okay, that, that's maybe 2%. 98% of clients are doing the exact opposite. They're saying, I want a consultant who has, um, has the methodology that I've read about and I believe in and I've seen it and there's already 20 firms doing this so I know it works and I want the one that's, that happens to be best at that. Not, not that's unique, that's reliable and credible. And so differentiation, which we all learn in consumer products, makes sense if you are a consumer product where the fundamental belief is you, the product will deliver. I mean, I used to work on, on toothpaste and toothbrushes at one time and GI products and stuff like that. And, and consumers know they all work to a certain degree. And so you have to differentiate on secondary benefits. When you get into consulting, clients don't fundamentally believe that consulting works. They don't believe we're going to deliver the basic benefits. And for good reason, because a lot of consultants don't. And every executive has been on projects that fail. So um, as a result, they're not looking for secondary benefits. They're not looking for that differentiation. They're looking (laughs) to be reassured on the primary benefit, which is just that you will deliver the result on time, on budget, 
with high quality, that you'll solve the problem. So do you differentiate, you know, it, in a sense by showing you're very credible, by showing you're very reliable, but not in the sense that so many firms approach it, which is how can I be different? That's not what clients are looking for. Now, now you're a marketer, so so tell me how you react to that. Does does that make sense? Does that resonate with you or not? No, I mean I agree with you certainly, and I think that you know the way that most firms approach differentiation, um, it's very upside down, anyways, right? Because they'll say, well, our our people are better. We're different from that firm, or we're better than that firm because <laughs> our people are better, or our process is better, or you know we have better service. And then what ends up happening is everybody says that, right? Yep. So one of the exercises I like to do with clients, and I talked about this in the podcast before, is print out the about page from your website and then print out the about page from your closest three to four competitors and, and black out everything that might distinguish your firm or another firm and then hand it to some clients and ask them if they can pick out your firm from the stack of papers. And I can almost guarantee you nine times out of 10, they can't. Because it's all vague and generic and it's it's not right side up thinking, right? It's it's right. everyone saying the same stuff. Yeah. You know what's really funny is the uh, I'll show you how deep that upside down thinking is. That what they're focused on is the about page, which is about us, whereas the page they should be focused on is about you. Yeah. Right. So it's about our clients. Because then a client can look and say, huh, are these folks like us? Have you worked with people like me, solve problems like the one I have, face situations like the ones I'm facing? Because that's what they're really interested in. They're not actually that interested in you. They're only interested in you to the extent that you can solve the problem that they have, that you've seen it before, you've done it before, you've achieved success before for people just like them. That's Nirvana. That's what they're looking for. And so it's not really even about us where, where your, your client should be focused. It's about them. So would it be fair to say, David, that the only differentiation that you really need is to demonstrate to the buyer that you can actually make good on your promise? Uh, well, that's certainly – yes. I mean I don't know if that's the only differentiation you need, but I mean that's a huge piece of it. Yeah, I mean, that's what you need to do. You need to show you are the most reliable, credible solution. Uh, you know, you also want to be, you know, a valuable solution. And if you have, um, if you have a process, if you have tools, if you have testimonials, if you have case studies, all these things which build towards the belief that one, you will help them solve the, solve their problem. Two, you're focused on them, not you. And three, you will not cause them harm. If you're doing that, you're good. So everything that builds to those three is is where you want to focus. Right. So you might be doing a lot of the same things that you would do in a, in a traditional differentiation exercise. The difference is this is not about proving that you are different because that's upside down thinking. It's about proving that we're the most reliable and credible solution, which is right side up thinking. Yeah, well, it's proving it's, it's proving that they will get where they want to go. That's right side up. So right. take the, the you out of it. So you don't even want to say that we're reliable. What we want to do is we want to say you can achieve this. Right. You'll get where you want to go and we'll help you get there. Right. Makes sense. Listen, David, this has been great. Uh, I could, you know, we could talk all day. Certainly I have a lot of questions for you, but I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, tell us where people can, can find you and look you up if they want to learn more from you. Okay. Uh, well, um, people can easily engage with me just by giving me a call. Um, my phone number should be right on my website and uh, that's davidafields.com. 
So David, A is in Andrew, fields.com. If you go there, um, you know, everything's there. It's, it's easy to get a hold of me. Uh, um, you know, I, I am very responsive to consulting firms and consultants. So, you know, just give me a call. And, you know, if, if you're, if you're a solo consultant or a boutique consultant, and you want to grow your firm. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Um, and it's fun. <laughs> Excellent. And we're going to have a link to your website in the show notes, as well as a link to the book, which I think is is an absolute must read for any independent consultant. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com and you can spell out five or use the number either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening.